Welcome to the Seven Figures Podcast Smart Money Strategies for Women with Sandy Waters. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union. Today on the show, term or whole life insurance, which one is better for your family? We'll explain in no dumb questions. Plus, what's the psychology behind spending versus saving? Are some people just wired to be savers? Continuing the work of her late father, Dr. Thomas J. Stanley, Sarah Falaw, co-author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and founder and president of Data Points, joins the show. And we'll take a seat at the kids' table. What can you start doing today that will get your kids in the practice of budgeting? All of that today on the Seven Figures Podcast. Here's Sandy Waters. Awesome. It is awesome that you are here. And yeah, there are times when I wish I married wealthy too or was a trust fund baby, so I didn't have to worry about any of this. But just like you, I earn a modest paycheck. I have to consciously spend. I got a budget I got to follow. And all of that hard work, it's kind of hard to deny how good it does feel. The satisfaction of saying that you are a financially confident woman. And financial confidence means something different to everyone. We love hearing from you, how you make it all happen. Reach out anytime, sandywaters989 at gmail.com. Our Money Victory shout out today goes to Lauren Marie, who said, I moved from Rochester and started a new job in D.C. last year. Within a year, I was able to pay off three credit cards and my credit score went up 30 points. However, my rent tripled. Okay, aside from that last part, congratulations to you, Lauren. It is one of the most liberating moments when you make a final payment. And Lauren three of them. We are all raising our glass to that. There have been plenty of times, I'm sure, for all of us when we sit there and we nod along, we pretend we understand because we're too embarrassed to say, I have no clue what you're talking about. Honestly, a lot of people, even super successful people, are confused about some of the financial terms out there. So that is why we start the show with no dumb questions. Our CFP, Erica Cummings from the Harmony Financial Wellness Group at RBC Wealth Management, joins this part of the show. Hi, Erica. Good morning. How are you? If you could explain the difference between term insurance and whole insurance. Yes, I can certainly give us the overview of both. Um, one thing I always say to people about insurance is that you it's like the Goldilocks scenario where you want to have just enough. So not too much, not too little, but just enough. Um, insurance is just kind of, you know, how we have to do things. We, mm-hmm. When you think about your home, we pay for homeowner's insurance. We hope we never have to use it. So hopefully every year it's a complete waste of money because something horrible has to happen to your house. And I look at life insurance the same way. So we, you know, these are, anytime we think about insurance, we're talking about covering what we would consider to be low frequency, high impact events. So probably not going to happen, but what they do, it's incredibly impactful to your life. So when we look at term and, and whole life insurance, it basically, first of all, looks at, it's literally the term that you're going to have the insurance for. So whole life insurance can give you lifelong coverage and it can also provide extra support during retirement. Term life insurance covers you for a shorter period of time, but it's cheaper and simpler. Easiest insurance, and most of us have this, and really most of us only need this, is term insurance. It's the easiest to understand. It has the lowest prices. It covers you for a fixed period of time, like 10 or 20 or 30 years. And you can either, a lot of people can get this through their work. So you have it employee benefits and you can do X times your salary. 
or you can do it privately. The main thing about term is that after that period of time, you no longer have insurance. However, it is cheaper because it's not covering you for your entire life. So you choose the term when you buy the policy, you all go through underwriting like any type of insurance, um, and then you just pay those premiums. And like most of us, if you have a 30-year term policy and you don't die during that time period, uh, it's over and we're in retirement and a lot of people don't need that insurance anyway. So for a lot of people, term insurance is, is really the best bet. However, whole life insurance is more complex and it's definitely used sometimes for more complex situations. It tends to cost more than term, but it offers additional benefits. So whole life is the most well-known and simplest form of what we call permanent life insurance. So it covers you until you die as long as you keep making those premiums. It also provides a cash value account that you can tap in for funds later. So when you make those premium payments, a portion goes towards the cost of the insurance and then a portion goes in a bucket. And depending on the type of permanent insurance you have, that bucket is either invested or you um, it grows based on a particular interest rate. But essentially it provides, like I said, lifelong coverage and the premium remains the same as long as you live. The death benefit is guaranteed, so there's, it's not going to stop after 20 years. And that cash value grows at whatever type of, of investment or rate that you choose to have in that particular policy. So when we look at the comparison, the biggest thing for people is what do they need? How long do they need the insurance for? Uh, and what can you afford? So for most young people, that have mortgages and children, you wanna make sure you have enough insurance to take care of your family. And that's why term tends to be the most, it, it truly is the most affordable and, and probably the most applicable to most people. If you choose whole life, you wanna, a lot of times it's to provide money for heirs, to pay inheritance or estate taxes. Sometimes people use it with their pensions to offset um, pension benefits. Is there fine print with that money that they're putting aside? Fine print that we should make sure we read carefully? The biggest fine print with whole policies is that you wanna make sure that a, you can afford the premiums. So I, when I tell you there's a dramatic difference in cost between permanent life insurance and term life insurance. So if you are a 30 year old and you're looking to buy one or the other, you're going to be shocked at the difference in price ah, okay. between the two. Substantial, okay. Substantial difference between the two. I really just want to make sure everybody understands that the most important thing about insurance is that you have enough coverage to make sure your family's going to be okay. Okay. Perfect. Erica, what are you working on? How can we follow you and reach out to you? Oh, what are we not working on? I know, um, right? <laughs> so you can. Um, Aside go- from the kids and getting them organized for school, oh, God. what are you working I- on? <laughs> I can't complain because we're all in the same boat on that one. And thank you to all the teachers and the administrators out there because I really would not want to be you right now. And I can't imagine. And we're so grateful for everything that you're doing. Um, Anyhow, you can find us at HarmonyFinancialWellness.com. That's our website. We're on Facebook at the Harmony Financial Wellness Group. We can also take emails if you want to get on our newsletter lists at Erica.Cummings at RBC.com. We do webinars every single month. This one month we're doing how to have meaningful conversations about money with your family And we are starting a podcast, podcast for women, um, just kind of how to encourage each other to be empowered and move forward and create wealth in your life. Awesome. Thank you, Erica. You're welcome. Have a great weekend. What 
is the psychology behind spending and saving? Are some people just wired to be savers? Is it our upbringing? Is it our cultural background? Dr. Sarah Fala, co-author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and founder, president of Data Points, is here. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Absolutely. Glad to do it. It must be so fascinating to dig into the research and really explore the psychology behind all of this. Yeah, it really is, especially when I have to even look at my own behaviors, right, and think about how I've been spending and saving and reacting to what's happening in the markets and all of those kinds of things. So it is definitely an interesting topic and um, has a lot of uh, kind of mirror holding up for me as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, so the psychology behind it, is it true that some people it, it comes easier, more natural, or what? What have you found the common thread is? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it definitely is a combination of our, you know, our biology, how we are, right? So our nature, um, but also how we've been brought up and, and the environment that we've been brought up in, you know, what we saw our parents or our caregivers do when we were growing up, you know, did they budget? Did we see them paying bills? You know, were they, or were they always coming home with new things, right? Were mm. you um, always getting gifts, lots of gifts, even if it wasn't, you know, a holiday or your birthday? That can have a very strong effect on the way that you spend and save in the future as well. But it's, there's definitely a case for, you know, again, the, the personality of different people and how they spend and save. Um, And thinking about that can help us, again, understand ourselves a little bit better, and then also maybe make better decisions in the future. I am very intrigued about, and it was mentioned in the first Millionaire Next Door, and now your updated book, The Next Millionaire Next Door, that there are these extremely wealthy people, millionaires, who don't spend nearly as much as they can afford. What is it that makes them so cautious and conservative about spending? Is it because of their upbringing? Right. You know, I think it's a combination of things. So it could certainly be the fact that they saw that growing up and that was sort of their environment. Um, It may also be that they're just, you know, they're conscientious and they don't, they want to stick to a budget. They want to stick to something, a plan that's going to allow them to build and accumulate wealth over time. Um, you know, that, of course, has a flip side when you do achieve financial success, that same characteristic, um, which is basically conscientiousness that allowed you to sort of stick to that plan and build wealth over time slowly, also makes you sort of not want to spend anything, let's say, in retirement. So, you know, it's certainly a good thing while you're accumulating wealth. It can be a challenge, especially maybe for those in your household, maybe your spouse, when you get older and kind of have achieved that, um, to actually enjoy that wealth that you've built. How do you, because a lot of people would probably say, okay, I would love to be addicted to saving, but (laughs) I just can't get there. It's kind of like going to the gym. I would love to say I work out every day. But I just am so inconsistent. How do we get to that point? So I think, you know, first of all, like I've said, you know, certainly having some kind of plan, some kind of plan of action of what you're going to spend and how often you're going to spend it is certainly the first step. 
Um, we would argue also, again, if you look at any of the research or the, the experts out there in the financial therapy fields or financial coaching even fields, you know, thinking about just how you generally make decisions. What are some um, you know, triggers for you making maybe a spending decision that you maybe later regret, right? Maybe you're stressed. Maybe you, you know, haven't thought it through. Those are the kinds of things that you kind of need to stop and take stock of that decision that you're about to make. And if you can just sort of, again, give yourself a little bit of time before making that decision, it's often the mm -hmm. case that you'll maybe make a different one in terms of, um, you know, thinking about the decisions you're making in, in regard to other people is also important. So one of the things that we know is that millionaires tend to not be influenced by the people around them, right? So they, you know, they don't care what their neighbors drive or where or buy. Um, if you can kind of think about the decisions that you're making also in terms of, hey, am I being influenced? Did I just see this on social media, you know, that someone just got a new car? Or they've got, you know, some great vacation that they just took. You know, maybe stop and think about why it is that you're trying to make that decision and if you've been influenced into it, you know, even unknowingly. Oh, gosh, that takes a lot of self-awareness, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that that's part of what, especially if you're not maybe naturally wired to be a saver, to be someone that um, is okay driving a 10-year-old car, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just not your personality. But you can think about the decisions that you make and adopt some of those same behaviors from those that are able to build wealth on their own. What was it after you studied you know, decades and decades researching these millionaires. What was it that you, when you said, you know, look in the mirror and you got to... Mm -hmm. so, so what I think dawned on me was that I am a little too impulsive with my spending decisions. Really? And I know that about myself. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I won't take the time to sort of, or I haven't in the past. I certainly uh -huh. do now. Uh -huh. But to take the time to think about why I'm making that decision, does it fit in with the rest of every, of every other financial goal that we have for our household? Um, and so that was absolutely something that um, has, has been uh, convicting. And, and, and I, I think about quite a bit. So now, was it the research that you did that opened your eyes to that? Or was it your spouse saying, hey, listen, Sarah, yeah, practice yeah. what you preach, honey? Definitely. Great, <laughs> great point. Yeah, I think it was certainly a combination. I mean, I think that, you know, I certainly first recognized, hey, this is not, you know, sort of the path, right? Uh -huh. And that came from the research. Um, but you're right. It's also having a spouse that is a little more conscientious. He's a little more thoughtful about the decisions that he's making in terms of, you know, again, spending and saving. And, you know, those two things combined have kind of pushed me to to be that way. I'll still every once in a while make some, you know, decisions that uh -huh. I'm not really <laughs> proud of, but uh, much, much less wow. often than before. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's yeah, perfect. That's right. that's so right. it feels like before you can move forward and become the next millionaire next door, you have to really look at yourself and dig deep and think why, right? And mm -hmm. your um, money personality assessment on your website is fantastic. Yeah, you know, I think that that's what, what one of the things that you can think about, like you said, is just take stock of, you know, how do you act normally, right? Not just in a day-to-day, -day, what are the unique characteristics that you have and then talk about that with relation to in relation to money, right, and, and financial decisions. You know, we know that millionaires report that being well-disciplined and being um, resilient and having a plan, those are all things that are important to them. You know, again, 
whether they've created that plan or their spouse has or they're working with someone, um, all of those characteristics that are go along with that personality characteristic of conscientiousness, mm. being detail-oriented, you know, following a plan, um, those actually predict um, net worth and financial success. And so if you can understand where you fall um, on that sort of uh, factor, then you can maybe make a better decision in the future. How can we take that money personality assessment test? Yeah, if you go to datapoints.com slash personality, you can take the test there and you'll see your scores on five different factors of personality and how it relates to making saving and spending decisions. Awesome. And we'll link that to the show notes. What else are uh, you working on? What do you want to get out there? How can we follow you guys? Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of the research that we're focusing on now is how we compare ourselves to others Mm. in terms of wealth. Um, Wealth certainly is in kind of how we think about ourselves and how satisfied we are is often related to how we view other people. And so we're really looking at that as part of the next sort of research phase at at data points and certainly um, as part of the Millionaire Next Door family as well. Gosh, that is interesting because you could live in a community where you are the wealthiest house in the block. And then you go to another community and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm broke. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for those under accumulators of wealth, those high income folks that kind of spend, you know, in anticipation of becoming wealthy, that's often a trap that they're in is that they've really bought really beyond their means and they're just struggling to kind of keep up with everybody. So absolutely. It's so important to find your own personal level of contentment, right? What really truly makes you, and I think this pandemic has opened our eyes to it, don't you think? I think so. I think certainly, you know, it's, I think it's, definitely highlighted what's important to, to folks in, in terms of the things that they're willing to spend time on, whether that's their family or career or their job versus the things that maybe aren't as important. And so, um, you know, that certainly goes along with those that tend to be financially successful as well, especially small business owners, is that they really mm. focus their attention. Dr. Sarah Fala, co-author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and founder president of Data Points. Thank you so much. Thank you. It is time to take a seat at the kids' table. How can we teach our kids the money lessons that they are not learning in school? Our money expert, Susan Beecham, founder of Money Savvy Generations, is here. How are you? I am well. Thanks, Sandy. One big thing, Susan, that parents said they wish kids knew more about is how to budget. So before we get your advice and your take on all of this, we asked the kids about budgeting. A budget is how much money you have in the bank. Why do you need one? To like, so that you can keep your house and your car and all your electricity running. It's how much you can spend and how much you have. A budget is a certain amount of money that you can spend and if you go over that budget, in the real world, like if you have a credit card and you have an actual budget, you'll have to like pay more and you might not have that more money. Okay. They're on the right path. I think it's always interesting how much these kids know. So where are you getting these brilliant kids? Because I know. <laughs> <laughs> they they're they're very intriguing on how they ha- they nibble away at the outside of what's true. Budgeting is such an abstract concept. 
but when you actually do it, it's a very concrete task. So when you first want to introduce budgeting, start with setting goals. Goal setting is the gateway to budgeting. People don't realize that there's a step before you jump into budgeting. And you can do this at any age. So at any age, what is something they want or need? Have them set a goal for what that is and then create a plan for how they're going to accomplish it, acquire it, and do everything in writing because we want to make it very concrete. Amanda, when she was quite young, my youngest, wanted a poodle, a stuffed poodle. And so she drew a oh, picture. Oh, you lucked out with that. I, I thought it was like a real poodle. A stuffed poodle, that's a little bit more uh, feasible. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, she knew her mother. So um, <laughs> when kids are very young, I ask them to draw a picture of what their goal is because kids aren't really into writing a paragraph about what their goal is. So she drew a picture of a poodle, and underneath it, she wrote down the cost. That's a great first step when you're setting a goal, right? And you can understand how it it can translate into good budgeting. So she put down the cost of a po- the, the stuffed poodle. And then she um, wrote down three things she could do to earn that money. Now, remember, when you're budgeting, you're budgeting your income. So you can see how these things eventually, these touch points will translate uh, into budgeting as time goes on. So this was the big poodle plan. Mm-hmm. And the poodle plan went up on the, bill, uh, the bulletin board at the back door because it needed to be somewhere where she could be reminded on a daily basis that this was something she had set as a short-term goal. Mm. So there's short-term goals and there's long-term goals. Short-term goals for kids can be something as simple as a $20 stuffed poodle. A long-term goal for a younger child can be something bigger, like a bicycle, a uh, computer game, Uh, As you get older into middle school, it can be a summer camp. It can be a hobby. As you get a little older in high school, it can be saving for the cost and care of a car. And then as you move into college, it can be the expenses that your child is going to be asked to take care of when they're in school, like books or any of their social activity money. Each one of those is a goal that they then break down into, well, what's the cost of that goal? Is it short-term or long-term? Do I have a week, a month to get it? Or do I anticipate it'll take a year to get it? Um, Of course, long-term goals can be as far out as seven years, but very young children don't go further than a week because that's like a year to them. Okay. When it comes to these goals, the reason I say they're in writing is so everyone is reminded. And there's something about putting something in writing that makes it real, not only for your child, but for you. All of a sudden you become a team. Every time you go out that back door and you see that goal with the plan underneath it, it reminds you to do what? To talk about it to assess it. How are they doing? Is it still a priority? Isn't it great you no longer want that poodle? Okay, isn't it great you didn't go get it, but you've been saving money towards it, so what's your next goal? Each one of these steps will take you to a point when you actually introduce budgeting, which is you can do budgeting in the high school years. It then becomes something that's that they've heard of before. 
and the familiarity of setting goals and creating plans to reach those goals will translate into budgeting because budgeting is a set of categories of wants and needs. But all these touch points when they're little and in middle school, high school, and college that you do where you set up short-term goals and long-term goals, distinguish between whether they're wants or their needs, it's practice for when they finally get to a point where you're setting up a budget. It won't feel like you have, uh, like you're raining on their parade. Most people wait too long to introduce budgeting, almost like it's a penance. It should be exciting, as exciting as the realization of that first goal. You know, that was something you were excited about. You were a young kid. Amanda was quite young. I think she was like seven years old. And she got to say in writing she wanted a stuffed poodle. And she got to create a plan to acquire the stuffed poodle. At seven and eight years old, most kids don't have independence over their money choices, Sandy. When you give them the opportunity to set a goal, you're saying, okay, that is your money choice Uh, that you're making. Yeah, yeah. Now let me show you how to get that choice, make that choice a reality. And that's what budgeting should be. By the time you get to budgeting, it should be exciting because you have now income and uh, you have the understanding of wants and needs. And oh boy, I can't wait to do this and plug this all in so I can see how I can take care of my short-term goals and my long-term goals. It shouldn't be a wah-wah. It should be a yay. Yay. There you go. Look, Susan just made budgeting fun for everyone. (laughs) Yes. Well, okay, fine. But, you know, I love budgeting because I also think it gives you you freedom, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, true. And you have a plan and it's it's a clear vision of of your goals, of where your money's going. And of of knowing what money you have. Most people are anxious about their money because they don't know. But if you teach your child from day one to know what their money is, to know what their money choice is, to know how to set a goal for what they want or set a goal for what they need and then create a plan for how to acquire that, you are then raising someone who will grow up into a young adult who has the tools in their toolboxes to take control of their income rather than their income taking control of them. Perfect. Susan, how can we follow you? How can we find you and reach out to you? You can reach me at my blog and there's it's in categories there. So you can click on budgets and you can read all about some other ideas, which is at susanbeecham.com. And they can find Money Savvy Generation's award-winning products and some free resources at moneysavvy.com. You're always the best. Thanks, Susan. You are welcome, Sandy. All right, that wraps it up. Another show. Let me know if there's ever a topic you want us to answer in No Dumb Questions, if there's a guest you want me to try to get on the show, or if you need help talking to the kids about money. This podcast is for you. Cheers to each and every single one of you who is proud to say that you are on your way to being a financially confident woman. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Seven Figures Podcast. Click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union.